Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, kids need to read. That's not only a wise directive, but the name of an Arizona-based nonprofit putting books in the hands of children in the state and around the nation. The reality is roughly six out of 10 kids in low-income areas have zero access to books outside of the classroom. Plus, a Valley-based writer releases the second book of her New York Times best-selling middle grade series. It's about five supernatural kids who were raised in isolation because their parents are criminals. And for those who are celebrating Christmas, Black Theater Troupe's annual production of Black Nativity by Langston Hughes is playing in Phoenix. We'll talk to its director. The first act is always the same. That is the portion of the show that was written and created by Langston Hughes. The second act is a more current telling of the same story. But first, Pepper Chambers is an actress, playwright, screenwriter, and director who was recently appointed as the first performing artist to the Chandler Cultural Foundation's managing board. She moved to the Valley with her husband about two years ago and has two films to her credit. I made my first film in 2012, so I wanted to give myself a chance. I wasn't sure that I could do it, and so I worked with the director so that I could co-direct something that I wrote. What is that film about? And tell me a little bit about the writing process. I mean, obviously writing for stage is one thing. Writing for screen is a lot different, even I mean, when you look at it formatically in a script, right? Yes, definitely. It's interesting because we know this. So screenwriting is a visual medium. So you have to show in your words, you have to show what you see in your head, which is a really interesting process. Whereas with theater, it's almost visceral. It, it really is visceral. What are you hearing? What are we, the sounds on the stage? Those are the kind of things that you're bringing into a stage play where with the script, you have to give all this visual information. And it, it is interesting for me to switch between the two that sometimes it gets difficult for me to describe what I'm seeing in a way for the, the camera to understand. So that's kind of a fun thing that you look at between the two mediums. And then you asked about my short film it's called Reparations. And I write about things that either scare me or things that I'm angry about or things that I'm curious about. And so Reparations is about just what it sounds like. Who do we owe and why? And so I look at that through the concept of how we actually regard those who are unhoused and what we think about them. And I recreated that with what do we owe people who need our help? So that's loosely what that short film is about. Phoenix in the metro region has a terrible homeless problem. And I've heard other people use the term houseless and some advocates say, you know, a home is an abstract kind of a thing. What folks need Mm -hmm. are houses. They need affordable living. When you were thinking about that film, what was going into your mind? Was it more about showcasing the problem or also thinking about solutions as well? Definitely solutions. And I think that for me anyway, I'll speak about myself, in order to come to a solution, I think that we need to look at how we view humanity and how we view people and how if we can put ourselves into the shoes of someone that is experiencing this, what kind of help would you want? How would you want to be regarded? Would you want to be ignored? Would you want to be seen? What kind of help do you personally need? 
And so coming from Los Angeles, where our problem is, oh my gosh, it it is, I, I don't even know the word anymore, but still I look at each person as a person with a story and that person needs some sort of assistance. And it is not up to me to decide what type of assistance they need. It is up to me to listen and to hear and then see how I can help according to what that person needs and their story and their life. Uh, I think that's one way individually how we can help to make some changes. Did you talk to folks who were on the streets in a way to not only empathize, of course, firstly, but in terms of building dialogue, for instance, and characterization for the script? I did. And people need to be seen and we need to know these people. And, and we became friends with, with a family, with a husband and wife, and stayed with them on their journey to getting into a home, to getting off of the street. Your latest Do Something came out, what, last year? Is that right? Yes, it came out last year. We shot it during pandemic, at the beginning of pandemic, surrounded by a bunch of actors who were, all of us freaking out clearly and not sure what was going to happen. And this was also after George Floyd and I was working with my mentor and my friend, Les Weeder, and he is married to a Black woman, and they have a daughter, and he was looking at the experience through the eyes of his daughter, and how are we going to do something in order to address pain? And so he came to me. He's like, Pepper, I am a Jewish man in my 80s. I can't write this by myself. It is not the right thing to do. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love Les so much. We've been friends a very long time. And I was like, yes, Les, let's do it. So we wrote this piece about a mother whose daughter, who is a Black Lives Matter protester, is kidnapped by a white supremacist. That was the storyline and, and what does it mean to help someone? And we're looking at white supremacy through this lens. Oh my gosh, it was big. And so what was beautiful about this project as well is because of pandemic, we shot it completely remotely. So each actor was given a kit, they call it, so with an iPhone. And... Um, they did all of their scenes directly into the camera, so they didn't have any actors around them, which is unique and a very bizarre experience for actors. And I directed the entire thing through online, like through Zoom. So oh, it wow. was um, That's it was, fascinating. It, it, was, it was fascinating and insane, and we had beautiful talent. Like our director of photography, he was using every bit of his brain to communicate to an actor, like how to set the frame and how to get the shot. And we did it. And it took us almost a year from very beginning to it being edited. And thankfully, we got into a bunch of festivals and we won several awards. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen. And sure. this is when you love filmmaking. The collaboration is gorgeous. Yeah, let me ask a little bit about that, particularly the writing process, because it's one thing when you're in a room with a person and you're kind of jamming out ideas and some people prefer actually to have writing partners. Other people prefer to just mm. put themselves away in maybe a quiet room and just <laughs> sit in front of a screen for 12 hours at a time. What is your writing process and what was it like to collaborate with somebody in writing dialogue, writing scene sketches and crafting the plot and the overall themes? That was that's a great question because I'm not used to working with other people. I am definitely that person that goes into a room, close the door, don't bother me, don't talk to me. And so what was beautiful working with Les is that, um, you know, Les has a theater background as well. And so he has this beautiful way of taking a macro approach to not only structure, but character arc and all of that kind of stuff. Whereas my approach, I'm more micro. I'm great with dialogue. I'm great with bringing in textures and things like that that come in through small details. The way that we work together is that he took the first half of 
whatever the scene was. And then when he was satisfied with it himself, then he passed it on to me. And then that's when I came in with my magic. And that's when I would change dialogue or add dialogue or contribute. And that worked really well for us. We were able to get to a place where we both felt good about something. And, you know, initially we have an age difference. I'm in my 50s, Wes is in his 80s. We've lived different lives. And what connects us, I guess, is art and ethnicity. And so it was fun to kind of get Wes's moments. I'm like, Wes, we don't say that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It was fun to just bring in our generational gifts and pull out something that people from different generations and different experiences responded to. And I think that's a testament to our working together. Performer, actor, playwright, producer, filmmaker, storyteller. Your list of credits is just amazing. Pepper Chambers, I want to thank you so much for your time. Oh, Tom, thank you. This is beautiful. I really appreciate this. Thank you. You can find out a bit more about Pepper Chambers on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, kids need to read. That's not only a wise directive, but the name of an Arizona-based nonprofit putting books in the hands of children in the state and around the nation. Plus, a Valley-based writer releases the second book of her New York Times best-selling middle-grade series. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Whether your business is new or deeply rooted, large or small, you can share what's great about it while supporting a vital community service, KJZZ. It's a fact that listeners trust and support companies that sponsor KJZZ, and by becoming a sponsor, you build a stronger connection to everyone in your community. Get connected today at SponsorKJZZ.org. KJZZ's mission relies on your ongoing support to be here day after day delivering the news, information, and entertainment throughout Phoenix and Arizona. Can we rely on you? Donate today at KJZZ.org. You have your favorites. Oh, man, my favorite mug. And maybe it's about time to treat yourself to a new favorite. Mugs and t-shirts for you and the family are at shop.kjzz.org. So what are you waiting for? Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. A literate community is a healthy community. That's the ethos of the state-based nonprofit Kids Need to Read, with the mission of putting books in the hands of children, Jessica Payne is the organization's executive director. We have been in Arizona since 2009. We originally started in California, and the founder moved the company here to Arizona. The overall mission, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, it says it right there in the title, Kids Need to Read. We have plenty of research that suggests if kids, for instance, are not reading at a certain grade level, by a certain time, they're going to face difficulties in many ways in life. And the mission of Kids Need to Read is putting books in the hands of children. Right, because it's awfully hard to read if you don't have books. And it's really sad, but all across the country, the reality is roughly six out of 10 kids, I would say, in low-income areas have zero access to books outside of the classroom. And that's just really rough, not being able to go to your bookshelf at home and pull a book off the shelf to read. 
So what we do is we work with schools, we work with libraries, we work with foster care agencies, basically any organization who serves children and wants to give them a book. I'm the one standing there in front of the line going, please pick me, pick me. Uh, I want to give you guys books. What can I do to help? And that is our whole model. What can we do to help make sure that our children have access to books, to good literature? to things that they can choose so that they will become strong, successful readers and grow up, go out there and become strong, successful community members. Let's talk a little bit about the funding for your organization. And just like everything else, you know, you're talking about costs. Everything is more expensive these days, and that includes books. And often those are the things that people are like, well, you know, I can fill my refrigerator or I can fill a bookshelf. So where does the funding come from to support your mission? And what types of books do you provide and who selects those titles? Our books come from publishers. They come from authors. They come from individual donors who are very generous. They come from sometimes organizations like Barnes & Noble right now is hosting a book fair for us. Do you have a national footprint or are you primarily devoted to this region? We do serve nationally, but about two-thirds of our giving is here in Arizona. But last year, I was really excited. We served 46 states and Washington, D.C. Do you have any upcoming events? Right now, I'm mostly working with schools during this time period. Uh, I do a program called Winter Kinder, where I come and do a story time with some kindergartners uh, at different schools. They get a book that they can take home and read with their family. It's a winter story and a reading buddy that's donated to us through PetSmart Charities and then also a Highlights magazine. They all get to take this home and it helps them to share the reading habit at home. And those are mostly my events for the winter. But I do have some fundraising events. Barnes & Noble right now, all 11 of the Phoenix area stores are actually hosting a book drive for us. You can go in and you can pick out a book that you really like and you can purchase it and tell them this is for kids need to read and they will collect those books for us. Barnes & Noble is also having right now a book credit drive. So let's say you have a bunch of used books at home. You can take them into Barnes and Noble, trade them in for credit, use what you need to, and then any leftover, you can donate to Kids Need to Read, and we can use those credit slips to turn around and then purchase more books for our organization. Another way, we do have an Amazon wish list online, so you can always purchase books. That's open year-round. I update that year-round. I love it. It's the concept of pay it forward. And, you know, we ask the same of our listening audience in public radio. Think about someone else who might not be able to afford this valuable public service and pay it forward, as it were, by becoming a member. And that's kind of what you're asking to do as well. Jessica Payne is the executive director of Kids Need to Read based in Mesa. Jessica, thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. You can find out a bit more about the organization on our website, word.kjzz.org. One author who is ensuring kids have books is a writer of them. Valley-based middle-grade novelist Lisa McMahon has several titles to her credit and recently released her second offering in her New York Times best-selling series, The Forgotten Five. But she wasn't always an author. I had left a job in real estate in Michigan at the time and 
I'd been writing on the side. And when we moved to Arizona, I decided to start writing full time. And it took me a few years. My first book came out in 2008. And when you say we, you're married to a fellow writer, as I understand, right? Is correct. My husband, Matt McMahon, has a new series coming in May. It's called Monsterious. And it's for the same age group as my readers, 8 to 12 years old. And uh, it's a really fun series. You can read them in any order, and they're not too, too scary, but they're just a lot of fun. Would you say there's a friendly competition between the two of you, like who can write the most words in a day or anything like that? Occasionally, we have a little contest like that just for fun. Um, But mostly, I mean, Matt's been supporting my work ever since I started writing. And he's my first reader. But we do a friendly competition every now and then. You are, of course, the author of numerous titles and also the New York Times bestselling Forgotten Five series. Book two was recently released in November and it's a middle-grade novel called The Invisible Spy. What genre would you say best describes the series? I would say it's fantasy adventure. It's about five supernatural kids who were raised in isolation because their parents are supernatural criminals who escaped from the big city of Estero 15 years earlier. So these parents were in the middle of a heist when they fled to their hideout uh, being chased by the authorities. And they stayed in this hideout for the past 15 years, uh, raising their kids and just hiding out. Uh, But just recently, those parents have disappeared. That left these five kids all alone with their supernatural power. And they decide at first they just want to stay in the safe place that they've always known. They've never seen a stranger before, you know, they've never experienced electricity or technology. And they go in search of their missing criminal parents and the stash that they left behind. I don't want to reveal too much. Instead, I think I'd like to talk a little bit about inventing the idea of having a series in the first place and your planning, because we talk a lot about the writing process here. Do you plot out each book individually or do you plot out the entire series ahead of time? I mean, that is, I guess, if you're lucky enough to get a a multi-book contract. (laughs) I usually know how the series is going to end. And so I'm always driving toward that ending. And as I'm Getting through the series, I'm always plotting out just a short paragraph, maybe describing what the next book is going to be about and where that book ends. So it's sort of like figuring out the arcs of each book and then of the whole series. It's interesting to talk to writers who write series because I have talked to more people than I would have imagined who actually will write the entire series. or It's almost like they're writing this massively long novel, and then they go back and chop it all up so that they have like three or four books already in the can, but they've done all of the writing ahead of time. And that just blows my mind that anybody could think in that kind of breadth. As far as the age group that you write for, what do you like about that particular age group? I really love the audience I write for in that ages eight to 12 range, they're so excited when they can finally read chapter books and and start to read those longer books. They're just really eager 
to explore a new world and you can see it in their eyes their faces i love to do school visits and definitely i feel like i'm writing for the right age do you write for adults as well I don't at the moment, but I'm thinking about writing something for adults. I have sort of a thriller in mind that haven't had a chance to really sit down and write it. But actually this morning, I was just kind of trying to figure out like what this book is going to be about. So that's quite a coincidence that you would ask that. How do you think your writing process will change? You've been so used to writing for middle graders. What things might you do differently? I mean, obviously, I would think some things like language choice, maybe using vocabulary differently. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. Um, I do feel like middle graders are able to handle so much. So uh, if they're old enough to experience something, they're old enough to read about it. But yeah, definitely the writing for adults is going to be a little bit different. I used to write some short stories for adults, so I'll probably pull some of those out and just read through them and try and get that voice in my head again. Lisa McMahon is author of numerous titles. Her best-selling series called Forgotten Five has now two books in the series, the latest of which is the middle grade novel called The Invisible Spy. Lisa McMahon, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us for a bit. Thank you so much, Tom. Great to be with you. You can find out a bit more about the Forgotten Five series on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, for those who are celebrating Christmas, Black Theater Troupe's annual production of Black Nativity by Langston Hughes is now playing in Phoenix. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. KJZZ Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. You have your favorites. Favorite online store, favorite park to take the kids or the dog. It's the season to get out of the house. And KJZZ is your favorite news station. Stay connected to important updates and entertainment, the number one news station in the Valley and your source for all your favorites. Become a member today at KJZZ.org. KJZZ News is your connection to the state and the globe. Insightful conversations and fact-based reporting make it your one source for news and analysis. Listen and support the station at KJZZ.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. It's Christmas time for those who are celebrating, and Walter Belcher joins me now to discuss the annual production of one of the Valley's most beloved annual stage productions. Black Nativity is running until December 18th at Black Theater Troupe, and of course, it's an adaptation of the Nativity story by Langston Hughes, performed by an entirely black cast. And of course, Mr. Hughes was a luminary of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, an intellectual and cultural revival of African-American music and dance, art, fashion, literature, theater, politics, scholarship. Folks who are not familiar really need to do some digging to look back because this is history that happened 100 years ago. Sure. And I'm curious about readers who are unfamiliar with his work, what they might appreciate even into the modern era as the Harlem Renaissance was 100 years ago. 
off the top, it is just wonderful music. If you just take it from the surface, you're, it's toe tapping. You get to enjoy theater. I refer to theater as, um, for those that are of my age, a Calgon take me away moment. Um, <laughs> that you can, you stick your toe into the bathtub and it takes you to some tropical island. The theater and specifically Black Nativity uh, allows people to close the doors and let's say the, the, the lights go out and the curtain goes up and there's just a heartfelt musical ride of enjoyment that is there on the surface level. Now, when you start talking about Langston Hughes and those that to know him or if you don't, I, I think he is, in, in this day and age, that when we are still in a situation that we're banning Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, to keep things like this alive to tell the story of, of the African-American community and, and the, the birth of Christ through an Afrocentric lens is so incredibly valuable, specifically because it is by Langston Hughes, uh, that we're holding on to this hundred years of history that in some ways it's a little scary how relevant it still is. But I think anyone who doesn't know it will come and really be introduced and use this potentially as a catalyst to go to get to know him better. And those that might already know him, when we think about his more popular works, this isn't one that right. people know. And of course, it was choreographed by Alvin Ailey. So they're definitely, you know, peers, one from a literary standpoint and the other from a dance standpoint, uh, and still leaving their touch on the world as Alvin Ailey's company is still doing wonderful things. So there's a little bit of something for everybody, whether you know those two guys or not, there's a lot to be introduced that you might not have known before. I want to talk about its staying power here in just a sec, but publicity for Black Theater Troops' presentation of Black Nativity describes it as a song play. And of course, Langston mm-hmm. Hughes, as far as I know, was not a musician at all, but he did borrow from traditional Christmas carols and, you know, included lyrics and music that were derived from traditional Christmas carols. Can you tell me a bit more about that term song play? In other words, are there spoken elements or is it all singing, for instance, in performance? So it's interesting because when we think about a traditional musical, often the music is an extension of the spoken word, the right. thought in, in musical theaters that the, the emotional value just becomes so large that the spoken word won't contain it, so it becomes a song. There's often in lots of musicals, for example, Rent per se, that there's conversation happening through a, a melody line. With this specifically, there is spoken word, but the interesting thing is Mary and Joseph are actually silent through the entire show. Their story is, is conveyed through dance. So we never get to hear their version of the story, but there is a narrator who he is the narrator in the beginning, and then he steps into the role of pastor. Most of the dialogue happens through him. Then the songs come in to complement the story versus there being a conversation or something that is leading to the journey of the characters. He tells the story, the songs are then 
there to accentuate the storytelling. So hence the term song play. Black Theater Troupe's production of Black Nativity has been running consistently, I think, since 1975. Why does it have such lasting power? And has it been updated in terms of the music, lines from actors, etc., over the ages? That's a great question. So wherever you see Black Nativity across the country, around the world, the first act is always the same. That is the portion of the the show that was written and created by Langston Hughes. The second act is supposed to be a more current telling of the same story. So that evolves yearly based on what gospel songs are current. Uh, So you can pull from other gospel songs that are more current to tell the same story. So that may be traditionals, go tell it on the mountain in the beginning, joy to the world, some of the more traditional songs that we all relate to when we think about Christmas. And then the second act takes a completely different turn in its staging, in its lights, in the costumes, and it becomes modern day. So every year, if you come to see it, the interesting thing is you may recognize the first act, but you won't recognize the second act because it's always something new. So I think that may be part of the the tug at people. They go, wow, well, let's go see how it's going to be different this year. Yeah, right. And then I also think it becomes, uh, for a lot of Black theater patrons, it becomes a part of their tradition. You know, many people go see Santa and take pictures with Santa and or people, you know, whatever the family tradition is, it becomes a tradition for a lot of people. They look forward to it. It's one of the the best, if not the best seller for BTT in the season. It's received so, so well. People are singing along. They know the songs. There's a sing-along quality to it that you don't get in traditional musical theater. You know, people are excited and are happy to join in on this little light of mine or amen. Walter Belcher is director of Black Nativity from Black Theater Troupe. It runs until December 18th. Walter, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word, and we really appreciate you. Tom, I appreciate you giving the platform for us to share a little bit about what we're doing, and we look forward to seeing you and everybody else. You can find the remaining show dates for Black Nativity on our website, word.kjzz.org. If you're not yet a member of KJZZ, we encourage you to make a holiday gift of support right now in an amount that best fits your budget and become a member of this public radio station. Your monthly sustaining membership of maybe $10, $20, or even $50 per month helps reliably fund original podcasts like Word and the fact-based news, information, and entertaining programs you hear on KJZZ. It just takes a minute. Go to kjzz.org and click on the Donate tab or look on our mobile app. I'm Tom Maxidon, and we're back with our final episode for 2022 in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for your support. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.